Our New Testament reading this morning comes from Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. I'm so glad you've joined us for worship this morning. And if you're new here, if you're visiting, we've been taking this Lenten season to inspect some of our felt needs. The needs that we have for control. The needs that we have to be happy. Some of these needs are are very good things, but the way that we pursue them twists us and contorts us, and we put emphasis and weight upon those things that they weren't meant to bear. And this morning, we're looking at the issue of, I need to be better. I need to improve relative to those beside me. And we're going to look at that through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of this passage in Philippians. And uh, as we do so, as we get started, would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would uh, send clean water through dirty pipes, and Jesus, that you would show up through my words. We need you. We need your grace, and we pray that you would give us yourself. Let us come to living water. Let us be forgiven. Let us find joy. Let us find your smile and your delight in us, and let us live out of that in a life of humility rather than competition, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the early part of the last century, uh, Sigmund Freud, looking around at the endemic competition in our society and in his society in Europe at that time, and also at the problems that he found in the counseling room, on the couch, so to speak, which was leading to these psychological problems and relational breakdown. And what he called it is the narcissism of small difference. Isn't that great? The narcissism of small difference. And what he meant by that is that we tend to focus on small differences to achieve a superficial sense of our own uniqueness, that we exaggerate differences in order to preserve a feeling of separateness, of aboveness, Now fast forward a hundred years, and maybe we can phrase it another way with a question. Does eating organic food make you a jerk? 
That was the Atlantic article, the lead article in uh, 2012. I can't remember which month. But they were testing how benevolent, how altruistic, how unselfish people were. And they divided the groups between those who ate processed food and those who ate organic food. Well, guess the outcome. The organic food-eating people were more snooty, they were more aloof, and they were less willing to help others. And the writers concluded that eating organic food might not be entirely about acquiring health, but that it reinforced feelings of moral certitude, of superiority. And therefore, the people that spent the most on the food, that were most selective, were also the biggest jerks, at least in this study. I'm sure it doesn't refer to anyone in this room. Narcissism of small differences. Many of us came to Portland because it's cooler than everywhere else, right? And there's no real debate about that. But don't we love Portland not simply for what it offers, but for what it says about us? We live in the place that others want to. We live here because we love sustainability, walkability, artisan foods, farm-to-table restaurants. Or maybe you just grew up here, or you ended up here, or maybe you're visiting from out of town or from far off, and you don't know what I'm talking about. You're not building your identity on your vegan undershirt or your car that's 35 years old or your carbon-neutral beer. But maybe you find yourself from time to time fixated on a negative comment at work that someone made about you. Maybe you call your clothing choice and your body shape into question when you find yourself standing next to someone who everyone perceives as being highly attractive? How often do you find yourself stuck in a season of self-loathing because you'll never be as funny, wise, spiritual, entertaining as a close friend? And let's not just stop with ourselves. If you're married or if you're a parent, don't we want more er for our spouses? We want our spouse to be classier, Romanticer, cleaner. Our kids, we want them to be quieter, calmer, smarter relative to other kids. This need to be better haunts us. It drives us. And honestly, it brings a whole lot of ruin and destruction in our lives. We're going to look at just three things that Paul, I believe, is pulling out here. One, why we feel this need to be better. How does this generally play out in our lives, and then how do we change? How do we begin to live differently? Well, why do we feel this need to be better? Paul describes it in two ways, using two words in verse 3 that reveals something very important about our hearts. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit or vain conceit. And the, the two words that are translated here, rivalry and conceit, are very difficult to capture in the English language. Both of them drill down to something beneath our outward behavior and really begin to expose the motivations of our heart and our devotion. What he says in rivalry is saying that all of us have this proclivity to position ourselves as rivals against the people around us rather than friends. We become more easily adversaries than those who are helpers. And the Greek word means here selfishness or selfish ambition in relationships that we desire most naturally to push our way to the front, to assert ourselves as better than those next to us. 
The word conceit is a very unusual word, and it's potentially misleading because we tend to think of conceit as someone who's excessively arrogant. And that's part of it. But what Paul is addressing here, what the word actually means is glory-hungry. That we're empty of glory and we want to fill in ourselves with glory. It's interesting because the Bible actually says that we were made for glory. That we were made in God's image. That we were made to live in His presence forever with dignity and nobility and value. But you see, it was a dependent glory. But the human story from the very beginning, from the very first pages of the Bible, what it involves is us declaring our independence. And we found ourselves, therefore, empty. Empty of the glory that we were meant to contain and to live out of. This search for independence and autonomy has stripped us of this contingent glory but hasn't replaced us, replaced it with anything that's near the, the same. We had this contingent glory that was meant to be beautiful and fulfilling, but we said, no, I'd rather have an independent glory, not a contingent one. I printed a quote from Madonna in Vanity Fair from 1991. I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy, I'm always struggling with that fear. I push by one spell of it, and I discover myself as a special human being. But then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody... I still have to prove that somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. I don't know how you feel about Madonna, but that's quite honest, and that she would be willing to share that for public consumption. She understands her inner drive, and she's willing to let other people see it. It's amazing what her script for life and Often what our script for life has become is to manufacture glory for ourselves and then hold on to it at all cost. We are starving for glory, and so we're competing with others, either to gain it for ourselves, to manufacture it, or to guard it. And we become very contingent people, we become very defensive people, we become very competitive people. How does this play out? Anyone remember Tanya Harding? She's a Portland girl, one of the best ice skaters in the world in the mid-1990s. She grew up skating at Lloyd Plaza, just a few miles over. But though she was one of the best ice skaters in the world, probably top two or three, the media went nuts instead over Nancy Kerrigan because she was considered more attractive. She was an all-American girl. She had these good looks and a winning smile and a way with the camera and a way with words, and the media just loved her, while Tanya Harding was simply a good skater. Everyone was rooting for Nancy Kerrigan. And in the 1994 U.S. Figure Skating Championship, it, it was apparently too much for the Tanya Harding camp. 
She's never admitted to being a part of this, but even her camp was so envious of the attention that Nancy Kerrigan was getting that they decided to hire a hitman to try and break Nancy Kerrigan's leg so that Tanya Harding could skate without her as her rival. This is envy unmasked. This is how it often plays out, that we have this self-absorption that engenders real genuine hate towards other people, and we begin to see them as competitors. But the problem is that envy most often plays out not in hiring a hitman, not in just outright hatred that comes out and shows up in our behavior, but it often lives inside, and it just kind of bubbles around inside us. It lives in disguise. It doesn't lead us to actively hurt someone, but maybe we go to the wedding of a dear friend And we're still single. And so instead of celebrating that friend's event, we're sulking. We're unhappy. We can't be happy for them. We're a young couple desperate to get pregnant. We go down and serve in the nursery. Or we go on Facebook, that online catalyst of envy. And we see all these pictures of these newborns and these happy, happy parents. And we want to just smash our computer. Someone pulls up to church in a brand new car, and you can barely pay your rent. Or maybe you overhear someone gushing about how so-and-so is so wonderful and thoughtful and such a great parent, they're such a generous person, and you're just dying inside to tell them about the time that that person was a total creep to you. This competition, this envy, this need to be better actually makes us miserable. Because it bubbles around inside incessantly and we can't get away from it. And even if we don't act upon it, it makes us unhappy. It makes us miserable. It robs us of our joy. And in fact, it it really does steal our humanity. But envy isn't really about the other person at all. Envy takes root in our lives. We're competitive because we feel ourselves called into question. We're constantly, always on trial. And therefore, you have to be right. You have to protect your reputation. You have to protect your pride. Your honor is always at stake. We constantly need to prove ourselves. Well, how do we change? How do we get out of that cycle? How do we still that kind of inner murmur of envy and competition that is eating us from the inside out? Paul says something interesting here. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit that we looked at a moment ago. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. So he's given us two different options, selfish ambition, conceit, or humility. But here lies the big problem, because you can't simply flip a switch and begin to pursue humility directly. Because humility, if it's true, by its very nature, can't recognize itself. Pursuing humility is like trying to fall asleep. The harder you try, the more you think about it, the more you focus upon it, the further you get away from arriving. When you really, really work hard on being humble, what happens? You end up feeding your pride instead, and you go back to the other side, because it then becomes your glory. My humility is now my glory. But false humility can be just as nauseating as conceit and competition. 
The only way to escape this crushing burden of needing to be better, of getting out of this cycle of envy, is to have your focus taken off yourself and put onto something else. In fact, onto someone else. And this is why Paul gives us this wonderful, beautiful, extended hymn on who Jesus is for you and for the world in verses 5 through 11. You see, what, what Paul understands and what we have to understand is that true humility comes from receiving your glory as a gift, not as earning glory. Not as earning and competing for glory that you then receive accolades from others to throw into that bottomless pit, but you receive glory as a gift, independent of what you've done, irrespective of how badly you've performed. You need glory. It's a legitimate need. You need glory. But you need a glory that's given to you. Not a glory you can manufacture. Not a glory that you can achieve. If that's your glory, you'll be constantly guarding it, constantly trying to gain more. You'll never stop. And it'll eat you alive. We hunger for glory. And so we spend our lives seeking to get it for ourselves. But Jesus, who had all glory emptied himself of his rights and privileges in order to give you and I glory. Jesus, you see, brings glory into your life by emptying himself of his glory, his eternal glory. We are filled, verse 3, with glory hunger, but Jesus, verse 7, had all glory and he emptied himself of it for you. Christ isn't just, you see, your example to follow. It's not simply stop being selfish and competitive and be humble. No. That's just doing the very same thing with a different practice. Jesus is not simply our example. He is your glory. Why did Jesus die as we approach Lent, the Passion Week, as we approach the Good Friday celebration. Why did Jesus die? Well, the New Testament gives us dozens and dozens of different ways of answering this question. He dies to make atonement for our sin. He dies to adopt us into God's family. He dies to make us in union with Him. He dies to conquer death eventually. He dies to redeem the physical creation. But do you know what else He dies for? He dies to give you glory. Paul says it here, and then look at Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 that we read often as our gospel reading. As Jesus is looking ahead to the days after his sacrificial offering of himself, he prays for his disciples. And if you belong to him, he prays for you in this passage. Jesus, you see, welcomes everyone. He invites everyone. But here in this particular passage where he's praying, he differentiates between praying for those who are in the world and outside of his body and those who are inside, those who are his followers, his disciples. And he says, Father, I pray that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. You see, substituting this groaning envy that never lets up He wants us to have joy. He wants that to be replaced by joy. He says, I pray, Father, that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. And why? How? I have given them the glory that you gave me. He doesn't keep the glory. He doesn't hold on to the glory. 
He receives it and empties himself of it so that you can have it. You see, when you, when you get religion, you say, I'm going to do this right if it kills me. But you see, that's probably the same thing you've been doing before. You're just now doing it in a different context in the church. You just change the venue. When you get religion, you say, I'm going to do this right. I'm going to get this right. I'm going to get better if it kills me. But when you get Jesus, you hear, come here, child. Let me, let me hug on you. Let me love on you. Let me embrace you as you are. Yes, I will help you change, but I want to love you right now. Do you know what that means? It means that the trial is over. It means that you don't have to get better for Jesus to love you. It means that he'd rather you be honest right now than just say, I'm going to do better this week. He'd rather you be honest about where you actually are than to play by the rules a little bit more fully this week. And most of you probably don't believe me. (laughs) Some of you don't want to believe me because religion has been your new game. Religion, getting better, has been the way that you've tried to control your life, and so you don't want me to be right. You don't want Paul to be right, because then you have to give up this game, this charade, and you're exposed again. And I can't tell you how many times over the years of ministry I've been asked, so, so with this grace thing, what's the motivation then for pursuing excellence? What's the motivation to get better? If no one feels the pressure to get better, then won't we all just be lazy? Won't we all just give up? Well, it's actually a pretty good question, but it also reveals that the pursuit of excellence, the pursuit of being better, the pursuit of holiness was really all about us in the first place. And here's the crazy thing about Jesus, because how he answers that question is that his unconditional acceptance, his giving you his glory doesn't diminish one bit the pursuit of of excellence. It just resituates it. Because you see, now you no longer pursue excellence to compete with your neighbor, but to serve them. You now no longer pursue getting better to position yourself vis-a-vis other people and to measure yourself, but you get better so that you can serve someone. Imagine if you're a diabetes researcher. You've been toiling for years to find a cure you fought for funding, you've worked long hours, you've eaten at your desk, but then one day you read in one of the journals that someone else has gotten there first. Someone else has figured out what you've been toiling and working on for years and years. How are you going to feel? Are you going to celebrate the fact that, yes, someone has gotten it, someone is going to help people with this, or will you be sad? Will you bemoan all the wasted time you put in to your research? Will you envy the fact that the winners that got there first will be written up in the journal and not you? Well, your answer to that sort of hypothetical question is probably going to tell you whether it's been all about you or not from the very beginning. And change the data, change the situation, change the hypothetical, make it personal to you, your family, your work, your leadership in the church, your whatever. Jesus tells us that loving God and loving neighbor are the two great commandments, and we are to pursue that. We are to do our best to get better at that, 
to fall in love with Jesus more and to carry that love into our relationships with other people. We pursue that excellence because we want to honor God with the gifts that he's given us and we want to serve our neighbor. But the sad reality is that we are driven often by this glory hunger, that we make it all about us. So much so that we can be sad if someone else is doing those things better. If someone is doing something that the church finds valuable a little bit better than we are, we're sad because it's really all about us rather than the ultimate goal of serving God and serving neighbor. What if the church instead became an alternative society? It became a place where we really leaned against rivalry and envy, where we weren't glory-hungry for ourselves all the time where we found our, our rest, our worth, our dignity, our value, our glory in Christ Jesus and what He's done for us. And then we get busy working for Him. Then we get busy taking that message of full acceptance and love to other people because it's filled us up so much and changed us. What we need to realize, individual, church, is that you will never be more loved if you are in Christ than you are right this minute. Not tomorrow, not next week, not after you get this habit taken care of, not in a billion years will you be loved more than you are right this minute. The trial is over. Why are you trying so hard to suck glory out of other people's lives when Jesus has emptied himself of his glory and you have it in the full? Why are you threatened by other people's success? Why do you care so deeply about what other people think of you? And these are questions directed at myself, too. Why are you afraid to bring your failure to Jesus and saying, you know what, I've been trying all these many months and years to get better, and I'm not any better. Would you help me? In fact, I think that my obsession about getting better has really moved me regressively. And I need you to change that. Can we bring that to Jesus? Can we say to him, help me, make me better, give me your glory? The reason we're doing these things is because we're still trying to manufacture glory for ourselves rather than resting in Jesus's. So as we confess our faith and as we come to the table, would you take that step, ask him to help you rest, to receive glory, not to manufacture it anymore. Let's pray. Lord God, we need your glory. We were made to be with you and to live beside you and for you, and oftentimes we want anything but that. We want to live for ourselves. We want to live in isolation. We want to live in competition with our brothers and sisters and with those that we meet outside of these doors. Father, I pray that this place would be a place where uh, the aroma of Jesus is strong, where your glory is seen, where we are simply reflectors of your glory. Would you let us rest in that glory? Would you change us? Would you make us better in all the ways that would be uh, consistent with your will for us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.